If you brought your Bible with you this morning, I hope that you did. I want to invite you to open it with me to Matthew chapter 6, and in a few minutes, we'll read a text from a section known as the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to speak this morning on the subject of of overcoming worry, overcoming worry. Really, this section of scripture on worry really has more to do with uh, resting in God and trusting in God, but for our purposes, the title, Overcoming Worry. Uh, Do any of you worry? Might you be classified as a worrier? Does your mind ever race with concerns about tomorrow? And about the future, perhaps a continuous chain of thoughts that are negative and fearful, focusing on all of the potential difficulties and troubles that that just might come your way. Worry is a mental state of continuous negative thoughts that roll in our minds over and over and over where I'm always expecting the worst, always trying to predict all of the worst possible outcomes, and so we worry. Soren Kierkegaard described worry as one of life's terrible tortures, a torture which we do to ourselves. Worry is an issue that should be taken seriously. It's not to be ignored or written off because the consequences are real and can be debilitating both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Did you know that worry can cause insomnia, headaches, stomach and digestive issues, muscle tension? It can actually weaken the immune system. Did you know that there is an actual medical diagnosis for persons who are given to excessive worry and it's known as GAD, general anxiety disorder? A condition that produces real tension, nervousness, feelings and thoughts of panic, increased heart rate, elevated blood pressure, difficulty in being able to breathe and to catch your breath from worry. All of us think about things, don't we? We think. We think about the future. We think about tomorrow, what's ahead, which is a normal and necessary part of life. It's good to think about paying your bills. It's good to think about an upcoming job interview. It's good to think about a work deadline or a first date or changing schools. Thinking about how to maintain a vehicle, thinking about family members and friends and doctor appointments and health. There's all kinds of normal good things that we think about. However, when we start thinking about those normal kinds of things and we do so all at once, going from A to Z, and all those thoughts become largely negative, characterized by fear and all of the potential, potential, what ifs, what if this, what if that. Expecting the worst, it's classified as worry. 
whether we do it on a large scale or a small scale, it's worry. It's a real kind of pain that we experience over things in the future that could happen but generally never do. Kierkegaard was right. It's a kind of self-torture. And as we're going to see from this text, Jesus says, don't do it. Stop doing it. And I want to just add right here at the beginning when, because we're going to see that three times in this text, in Matthew 6, verse 25, verse 31, and also verse 34, three times Jesus specifically says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. And, but I want to add, Jesus doesn't just say don't do it to kind of convey that, just deny it or just ignore it. It's more than that. Worry is a real issue, and if he said to ignore it, just to deny it, then I'd worry that I was going to start worrying. And so I want you to read this text with me, starting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Let's look at and explore this subject a little bit that's probably relevant to all of us in some regard. Verse 25. Therefore, or for this reason... I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God... So clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we want to ask you today that in your grace and your goodness and kindness that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice, and you'd minister to us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You begin to examine this text, 
again, belonging to this section known as the Sermon on the Mount, it's important to first note, who is Jesus speaking to? Who is he teaching here? And the answer is he's speaking to a mixed crowd of people, a diverse group of day laborers and business owners and religious type. It's a largely Jewish crowd, but very diverse. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And he begins in chapter 5, and he first describes characteristics of those who belong to it, who are members, citizens of the king, and belong to his kingdom. So he describes who these people are and describes those characteristics. They're known as the Beatitudes in chapter 5. And the main idea that runs from chapter 5 through chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount is those who are citizens of the king, those who are members of the kingdom, will be different. That's the main message, really. They're different. He says in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, then you have no part. You don't belong to the kingdom. And so he's describing those members of this kingdom, and he says they are different. Different from the Gentiles. Different from the world. If you'll notice in our text in verse 25, before he says anything specifically and provides a rationale for why we shouldn't worry, which we're going to look at, he proceeds his teaching with a phrase. You see it in verse 25? Therefore, or for this reason. And so you probably have been taught like I was, whenever you see the word therefore, you're to ask yourself, what's it there for? And so the word therefore, or for this reason, always refers back to something that's preceded, uh, preceding what's been and or is about to be said. And so Jesus is referring back to something that he's just taught. It is a mistake. It is a mistake. It's unfortunate to read this section in 25 through verse 34 and to attempt to try and interpret what Jesus is saying here without connecting it to what he has previously said. And you'll miss some meaning. You'll miss the context. And so what did he just previously say? So if you have your Bible open, I want to go back and kind of look at what has he just said that leads to what he says or is about to say in this rationale about worry. So the previous context is found in verses 19 through 24. So with your Bible open, I want to just touch on these three three instances of what Jesus is speaking about. And I'll tell you right up front, Jesus is speaking about money. This changes the way we interpret what he says about worry in 25 through 34. But three instances he's speaking about money. Let me just kind of touch on these very briefly. But if you'll notice, look at verses 19 through 21. Do you see that? Jesus, is in those three verses, mentions two kinds of treasure, doesn't he? There's one on earth, and there's another treasure in heaven. One treasure is durable, and one is not. One's durable, one's last, one doesn't. And so what he's saying here is the application is he's saying his disciples, those who belong to the kingdom, will concentrate on laying up treasure 
In other words, using money and wealth and goods for investing in what is eternal, what is going to last. That's the main idea. So one of the ways that you and I are different as kingdom citizens, as kingdom people, is we're different on how we use our money. Or are we? Do you think that you and I are different in how we use our money than the Gentiles, than the world? Are we using it to invest in the kingdom? Then second, in verses 22 and 23, these two verses, then he also provides not... We saw two treasures. Here he provides two perspectives. One perspective is of a blind person, and the other perspective is of a sighted person. One cannot see, so walks in darkness, and the other sees, and therefore walks in light. And the difference in those two perspectives is because of a tiny organ known as the eye. What does that have to do with money? Well, the answer is, if we have physical vision and sight, we can see where we are going and we can see what we are doing. But if we have spiritual vision, we will live with purpose and focus. And so the lesson is, if our vision spiritually becomes clouded by money and material things, we will then lose our sense of kingdom values and covetousness will take over and blind us. So the difference for followers of Jesus are they invest in the kingdom, they use their finances, they use their money by laying it up, by doing things that are going to last, and second, they are not covetousness. They have a different vision, they have a different perspective, instead they are generous and they give freely with joy. And then in verse 24, very familiar verse, isn't it? Two masters. So, two treasures, two perspectives, and two masters. One master is God, and the other master, some of your Bibles, does it use the word mammon? Mammon is a word that literally just refers to wealth or money. Whichever one is our master determines where we do the other things, where we lay up our treasure, and how we fix our eyes, and how we view things based on who is mastering us, who controls us, and whom are we going to serve? Are we going to serve Almighty God or the Almighty Dollar, the Creator or our own creation, the Dollar? Jesus says a combination of those two is not just difficult. Look at verse 24. He doesn't say it's difficult. It's impossible for you and I as kingdom people, as kingdom citizens, to straddle the fence on this issue of who is our master, God or money. He says it is impossible. One will be master over the other. And so the previous context in verses 19 through 24, Jesus is saying those who know God, those who know my Father and belong to the kingdom will be different, especially as it pertains to money and material things. The main difference will be in their perspective. They will invest financially in things that are eternal. They will not become blinded by covetousness. You remember Jesus in Luke's gospel talks about the rich fool 
You remember that the, guy, the story about him? This guy who lived his life and always was wanting more and more and more, more money, more wealth, more material things. He was never satisfied, never had enough. And so do you remember he was always working to accumulate and to build more barns and bigger barns and better barns without any thought of God, without any consideration about the needs of other people. And Jesus called him a what? A fool. He was a fool. We'll be different in how we invest and use our finances. We'll not be blinded by covetousness, and God will be our master, not our checkbooks, not our savings account, not our investments. All of our security and dependence is upon God. God is our source. And I kind of cemented this into my mind maybe five, 10 years ago, and I came to the realization, my employer is not my source. Your employer is not your source. This church takes care of me and my family financially. So part of what you give to the Lord comes to us, and for we're very grateful, very thankful to God. And I, and I want to say this to you in this little sidebar. That means how I work as your pastor and when I take money that's given to the Lord and how I work and my work ethic matters. I'm receiving five tithes and offerings to the Lord and out of that is how God has chosen to care for, for me. But my, my source is not the church. Where you work for Toyota, the hospital, or some business, that, that might be the organization that pays your check, but that's not your source. Not as a kingdom citizen, not for people who belong to God. Our source is God. And you can take away the employer anytime you want, and our God is faithful to take care of his kids. He is our source. And I want to I want you to say that I'm, I'm making a strong point on that because I, I'm trying to encourage you to think about that, to, to keep your confidence and your trust and your dependence upon God. Toyota may shut down. God's still on the throne. He's our source. He's our source. This teaching was needed then and it's needed today. Hillcrest, this teaching really about Jesus teaching about money and materialism and wealth, it really confronts us and smacks us in the face. Do you recognize, realize that you and I are the most affluent, rich culture in the history of the human race? We no longer can turn a blind eye to the facts. Let me quote from John Stott regarding what he says about the application of this text for today. He says, as the world's population continues to mushroom and the economic problems of the nations becomes more complex, the rich are still getting richer and the poor poorer, and the social conscience of Jesus' disciples is awakened with a fresh discovery that the God of the Bible is always on the side of the poor and the deprived. Therefore, responsible Christians are more and more uneasy about their affluence and are seeking ways to develop a simple lifestyle which is appropriate both in the face of the world's human needs and out of loyalty, loyalty to the master's teaching. What do you think about that? That's the context of what Jesus is about to say about worry. It's connected to money and wealth and materialism. 
And it's important as you go through this to understand that Jesus is not haphazardly just bringing up random unrelated topics in the Sermon on the Mount and then he throws one else in there and this other one about worry. To the contrary, everything Jesus teaches about worry is connected to what he's previously taught about money. And it's in this context he says, don't worry. So let me ask you the question again. How many of you worry? How many of you would be known by others as a worrier? And more specifically to the context, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you would worry about money? That you have some angst inside of you concerning money? Afraid that you don't have enough? Afraid at the end of the month you're going to have more month than money? Fearful that you might lose what you have? If we are, then Jesus is literally saying to us, Stop doing that. Don't worry about your money. Don't worry about the things that you need and whether you're going to have enough. Whether you are blessed with mammon, whether you are blessed with wealth and considered rich, or if you're poor and have very little, in either case, Jesus says, don't worry. You see, for those who are wealthy, they're more tempted to trust in their money and forget God and to fear that they're going to lose it or they're not going to have enough. And for those who are poor, the temptation is to doubt God, to become discouraged and overcome with fear and to lose faith and hope that God can be trusted and that he's true to his word. And so to both groups and everyone in between, Jesus says, don't worry, especially about money. And listen, this worry, this concern about money, evidently is a real issue. It's a real issue. Did you know? that there are 38 parables in the New Testament. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus teaches are about money. Did you know that one out of 10 verses in the Bible addresses money, finances? 500 verses in the Bible on prayer, less than 500 about faith, and over 2,000 in the Bible regarding money. Evidently, God knew what our tendency in the flesh apart from faith, was going to be. We were going to worry about money. Kind of quiet. And so Jesus says, don't worry. And in the text, and I want to just touch on this in the remainder of the time, two rationales why Jesus says, we as kingdom citizens, as God's kids, why we should not worry, and specifically in the context of finances. Look at verse 34. Jesus is saying to have this mindset, this attitude, first of all, that you and I are slaves, that he is the owner, he's the master, and our main responsibility as his slaves, as his servants, is that of obeying him. So he says, don't worry about your life. That that phrase, about your life, it's all-encompassing, it's all-inclusive, it covers everywhere, every year, because God is our master. The basis, the heart of worry, the heart of it is really the sin of failing to trust in God, to trust his word. Remember we talked about providence when we were going through the book of Ruth, that God sees, he sees ahead and he sees too, and worry really is a failure to trust in God's providence. Again, something that all of us are prone to do. Worry, 
literally comes from a word in the Greek that literally uh, means to strangle or to choke. Worry strangles, worry chokes. Uh, it's kind of a mental strangulation and an emotional choking, a, certainly a spiritual strangulation that will move us to fear instead of faith. The opposite attitude of worry is that of being content. Something the Bible says is learned. Let me read to you a couple of passages of Scripture. Paul mentions this to the Philippians as well as in his pastoral epistle to Timothy. But listen to the, the opposite here, is being content. It's in Philippians 4. I rejoice, or I have not learned to speak this way to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I've learned to be content. I know how to be abased or how to do without, and I know how to abound, to have abundance. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I've learned to be content. He says the same thing to Timothy in this pastoral epistle in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here's what he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Content. We learn to be content in God, who is our master, who is, who is good, who is our source, and he's worthy of our faith and trust. Jesus says, is saying in this text, God is king. He owns everything, controls everything, provides everything. Everything that we eat, drink, that we put on is all from him. He provides it all. And I want to add, those are the very things that the advertisers today use to appeal to us, don't they? They try to sell us things related to our eating and our clothing, temporary things, fashion trends, clothes, cruises, foods, automobiles, appliances, vacations, all of those things and on or more are all appealing to the body, all kind of self-indulgent things. And Jesus raises a question, isn't life more than that? Isn't life more important than those kinds of things? And so he says, he, Jesus does not say, don't enjoy things, don't enjoy life, but instead we need to see life as being more than those things. Those are not the things that Jesus, we should be worried over. Then in verses 26 through 30, he gives some examples of God's care. The first example is in verse 26. He says, be a bird watcher. It's a biblical. I mean, most of us think about bird watchers are probably odd people. You know, Jesus said, be a bird watcher, doesn't it? Look what he says in verse 6. He says, look, watch birds. Literally, it could be translated, fix your eyes on birds. There's millions of them. We've got some big old 20 or 30 turkeys that walk through our backyard almost every day. Funny to watch. And I didn't know turkeys could fly that high up in trees either. They're fun to watch, but millions and millions of birds, and all these birds seem healthy and happy to me. They just go about their business and seem like they're doing fine. I don't know if birds suffering from hypertension, no stress-related diseases. I don't, they don't appear to be worrying to me, but God takes care of them. And the idea is he'll take care of us. Doesn't mean that you and I quit working. Birds work hard. They instinctively make provision for the future, but they don't seem to worry. 
And it also doesn't mean that life is going to be smooth sailing. It's not always smooth sailing for the birds. I've made the mistake in my past, and I can still slip into it today, still prone to it, of living in the future. Any of you ever do that? I live in the future, looking for the time when troubles are all going to be past and things are going to get easy and normal and there'll be no more stressors and when we get through this and then everything will get easy again. And Any of you ever do that? Just me. You know what I've come to realize? That's just not life. Solomon, wisest guy who ever lived, he said life, he kind of summarizes life and says, it's but a few days and it's full of trouble. If you read Song of you read Ecclesiastes, it's kind of depressing until you get to the very end. You know, vanity, vanity is just full of trouble, short, full of trouble. So life is going to have that. But the idea is if God cares for the birds, don't you think that he'll care for you and for me? Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Listen, you and I have the privilege of calling God Father, calling him Abba, Abba Father, which Abba always conveys a close, loving, kind, good, caring Father. I spent several days over the last several weeks, Mindy and I, trying to serve our family. Being Abba parents, specifically trying to be a good dad to one of our kids. And as a good dad, I don't, don't want to spoil them, don't always want to bail them out fully when they get into trouble, don't want to enable our kids, but as is appropriate to serve them and to demonstrate love, unconditional love and care and support as a good dad. You know that Jesus said of our heavenly father, he's a much better dad than any earthly dad, any earthly father. And if you have your Bible, we'll just jump over to chapter 7. Look at verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you, what dad, if his son asks or daughter asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if his son or daughter asks for a fish, what dad would give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's much better than any earthly dad. Much better, much more faithful, much more wise, much more gracious, all-knowing. The second example is in verse 27. He says, worry doesn't really work, doesn't accomplish anything. He says, by worrying, can you... Add any cubit to your life, 18 inches is a cubit. Can you, by worrying, can you make yourself any taller? Or the other idea is, 
by worrying, can you add any length to your life through worry? Probably shorten the length through worry. We really add a burden to our life by living in tomorrow, by living in the future, by borrowing trouble instead of enjoying today. And the third example is in verses 28 through 29. I've never done it, but it's been said if you were to take the petal off of the bloom of a lily and put it under a microscope, they said it's breathtaking. Under a microscope to look at the bloom of a lily, a beauty that Jesus says would make Solomon's robes pale and look like rags. Jesus likewise says in verse 30, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is gone, thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, all you of little faith? Luther, commenting on this verse, said we can learn of God's love and care for us by considering the birds and the flowers, looking at birds and looking at flowers, and then resting in him. The first reason, rationale for not worrying is because God is our master. He's king. And the second reason not to worry in verses 31 through 34, the rationale is because we're his kids. We're his children. Again, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're different. We view life, see life differently than those like the Gentiles. Most people in the world are seeking after material things, believing, believing that they're going to find meaning and significance in material things. When I was in the seventh grade, I made the junior high basketball team. I made it when I was in fifth and sixth grade in elementary school. We were the Fenton Lawn Scotties. Scotties were little dogs, and our colors were green and white, and all the guys in fifth and sixth grade that made the basketball team got white or green Chuck Taylor tennis shoes. Not me. I got Jeepers from Montgomery Wards. White Jeepers. It was humiliating. It was crushed. And I got in seventh grade, made the basketball team, Got my first pair of red Chuck Taylor high tops, top of the line, top of the line. Man, I thought, you know, just make me better, run faster, jump higher, those red Chuck And I put those things in my gym bag and zipped them up, and I never wore those, ch those tennis shoes except in the gym. In practice, I never wore them anywhere. I I'm not exaggerating. I wiped those things down. I kept them clean. And gradually, something came up special. You know, I'd want to wear them in church, kind of show them off. And I started wearing them out a little here, and then I wore them here. And you know what happened to those red high-top Chuck Taylors? After a while, they started looking a little soiled. And no matter how much I still rubbed on them or scrubbed on them, they still started looking older and soiled and got dirtier and dirty. And I want to tell you, after a while, those, those tennis shoes didn't really mean anything to me. They didn't make me happier. They really didn't make me run faster, jump higher even. And I think there's a lesson there for all of us who think that if we get this newer thing and that newer that and that pair of jeans and that clothes and those designer lenses or this car, that, that somehow those things are going to make us happy. And it's an illusion. 
People worry and fret and concern themselves over foods and clothes and cars and homes and furniture and all those things. I just got back from Austin, Texas. It's full of young people. It really is a weird place. I wouldn't advise you to go there. <laughs> City is booming. 200 residents a day. 200 a day are moving into Austin, Texas. And it's full of restaurants on every corner, every kind of food imaginable. And there's fact, you can just watch all these college students, people who are just flooding, people from California coming in there, property going through the roof, can't find a place where it's congested, dirty, crowded. All those young people look like they need just a good bath. Somebody needs, needs to scrub them up real good from my perspective. But style, fashion, and food is all the rage. Hats and tats and shoes and hairstyles and you can tell a lot of them are from California. If you're from California. It's an example of worrying about something that people worry about. You know what that is? We, we worry about money. We worry about uh, relationships. Sometimes we worry about health and finances. But another thing that people worry about is how they're perceived. Oh, that's a big deal. Perception. Worrying about how, what other people are th gonna think about me. Worrying, instead of worrying and thinking about what God sees, what God thinks of me. Jesus reminds us in verse 31, 32, God cares for you, he cares about all of your needs, all of your concerns. Your heavenly father knows all of this and he longs for you and I to trust him. So how shall we live? How shall we? One of the best known verses in the Bible, verse three, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? Then everything else will take care of itself. Everything else will be added to you, exactly what you need. What does it mean to seek his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, it means to seek to know him. Remember Philippians 3, Paul says, everything that I once lost or gave up from Christ, I, I count it all as dung, as rubbish. Everything that I've lost in the surpassing drive of my life, my aim, my ambition is to know Christ, to know him, to have fellowship and to suffer with him, just to know him more and more. That was ambition. To know Christ, to know him through his word and to to live out his will in your life, to welcome his rule in your life, to advance his interests. That's seeking his, his righteousness and his kingdom. And we do it all one day at a time. Verse 34, Hillcrest, don't get caught up in the then syndrome. Living in the then syndrome, thinking that everything is gonna be perfect in the future. When I get married, when I have a baby, when I get that new promotion, when I get that salary raise, then everything will be great. It's the then syndrome and we can live in it and miss today. What does Jesus say in verse 34? Don't worry about tomorrow. <laughs> there's going to be problems tomorrow. Why you, don't worry about all the problems. Just, there's going to be plenty of issues to deal with today. And so just live in the day and trust the Lord. Because the fact is, until he calls us home, tomorrow we'll have trouble. George MacDonald commented, no person ever sank under the burden of the day. It is when tomorrow's burden is added up to today's burdens and the weight then becomes more than we can bear. Jesus says, don't do it. Do not worry, stop it. Don't allow concerns about money to strangle and choke out your faith and your trust in God. Don't worry what everyone else thinks of you. Don't worry about your job. Let go of worrying about your family and friends and kids, Pastor Charlie. Stop worrying that you are going to start worrying. Let me close with a couple practical suggestions. 
Do you understand at the core of all this, the problem of worry, do you, do you really understand the core issue of it? It's self. At the heart of worry, the problem is self. It's me. I want to be in charge. I want to control everything. I want to fix everything. And I know I can't, and so I worry, trying to do it. The key is humility, surrendering to God and trusting him. So let me just give you a close with two suggestions. Number one, practice it. Get alone with God and keep a journal. Sounds simple? Get alone with God. As an antidote to worry, get alone with God and keep a journal. How many of you ever lay awake in bed at night? And I don't do this on purpose, but sometimes you just wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you have a thought and one thought leads to another thought. And I'll, I've, I've in the past laid there for hours just, just mind racing and can't sleep. Anybody? That's just kind of probably a preacher issue, I guess. And you just lay awake in bed, mind racing, turns to worry, and I've learned to get up, to get up, spend a little time in the Word, and write things out, and realize after I begin to write things out, as simple as it sounds, realize there's nothing really to worry about. And pray and talk to Him. Talk to Him about your worries. Lord, I don't mean to do this. You know that. You know how prideful that I am, how much in control I want to be. Would you forgive me and would your Holy Spirit replace worry with peace and remind me of who you are and how much you love me? Second, would you consider disconnecting from social media and connect with God? Would you get off Facebook and Instagram and stop texting and get off the social grid and turn off your cell phone occasionally? And instead of worrying what everyone else is doing and what they're saying and what they're thinking and what they're feeling, apply that same concern to God and seek Him. So how do you do that? Well, you seek Him through His Word, spending time in His Word, and meditate on 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 and 10. Cast all your cares upon me, for I care about you. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Philippians 1, 6, being confident that, God, you started all this work in me, and you're faithful to never leave anything unfinished. Philippians 2, 5, let this mindset, this attitude, God, be in me, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 4, to rejoice in the Lord. Always, even when I don't feel like it, to worship and rejoice in the Lord. Or Philippians 4, 8, think about these things. Think about things that are noble and true and just and praiseworthy. Trusting Philippians 4, 19, and my God shall supply. My God shall supply all, all of my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. To trust him. To humble ourselves before God and say, God, I trust you. Let me pray with you.